Well, all right, good afternoon, Hallows Church. Uh, it's good to see you. It's good to be here in Fremont with you, as always. Uh, my name is Jeff. I serve as one of the pastors here with our church. Uh, if you've been journeying with us lately, you'll know that last week we've kind of finished up the uh, series, sermon series on the book of Ephesians. We wrapped that series up last week, and uh, we'll be kicking a new sermon series into gear in a few weeks or a couple of weeks. But in the meantime, what that means for us is uh, I'd like us to open our Bibles today and explore a passage that I've been meditating on in the Old Testament. So with that being said, let me invite you to <clears throat> open your Bibles and, and head over to the book of Habakkuk. Now, if you're not sure what I just said, uh, don't feel bad. <laughs> it's an obscure little book in the Old Testament, but uh, fortunately, there's a table of contents at the front of most every Bible, and there's no shame in using it. We're among friends here. And so if you need to, look it up, head over in that direction, and I'll meet you there. Habakkuk chapter 1. We're actually going to cut, it's a little three-chapter book in the Old Testament, and we're going to kind of look at, we're going to kind of do a high-level survey of all three chapters, and that's why you didn't hear a, uh, a specific text read like we normally do uh, this afternoon. Uh, rather, we're going to kind of do a high-level survey. We're going to touch down at several points along the way and see what we can learn as we go. Now, in the mid-1800s, there was an English missionary. His name was Alan Gardner, and Alan, along with a group of people he was leading, they left behind their families, they left behind their friends, they left behind the comfort and the convenience of home in England, and they set sail for South America. They set sail for the, uh, specifically the Patagonia region of South America. And they did these things, they left all of these things behind for a very important reason. You see, they wanted to reach people uh, for Jesus, who had never heard about Jesus. That was their objective. That was their passion, to be used by God in that sort of way, to advance the gospel to the ends of the earth in a uh, literal sense. And that's a very beautiful thing. But it turns out that didn't happen. That never happened, in fact. Before they ever reached their destination, they ran into some very serious problems. Their boat ran aground on a small island, a small uninhabited island off the southern tip of South America, and their, their boat, it was destroyed. Now, they all survived, at least initially, but their resources were limited, and uh, their resources could only last so long. And so rather than reaching the people of Patagonia with the gospel, Alan Gardner and his group instead found themselves stranded and starving and over the course of the weeks and months that followed, Alan Gardner watched every person in his group, one by one, take their final breath. It turns out Alan was the last one to go. And we know this because he kept a journal. And that journal, it was found uh, next to his body when this scene was, was later discovered. And get this. In the second to last entry in his journal, this this last man standing, Alan Gardner, he was, he was writing about his faith. He was writing out the words of Psalm 34. Listen to these words. Taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. You who are his holy ones, fear the Lord. For those who fear him lack nothing. Young lions lack food and go hungry. But those who seek the Lord will not lack any good thing. And then beneath those verses from Psalm 34 were the final words that Alan Gardner would ever write in his journal. And those last words were these. He wrote, I am overwhelmed with a sense of the goodness of God. 
Now, by most human measures of success, Alan Gardner's life and the mission he had for his life had, had failed. No sermons preached, no souls saved, not even a single Bible study, as far as we can tell. To many, it would seem that God had let these people down, that God had abandoned Alan and his entire group. Many surely asked, where was your God when you needed him most? But what is the measure of success for us as Christians? Is it what we do for God while we're here on this earth? Or is it perhaps the trust we have in him and the intimacy we have with him during the time that he gives us? This man, Alan Gardiner, he was, he was reveling in the goodness of his God, putting his trust in God's plan for him and his life above his own plans, even as darkness and death descended upon him. And that's quite remarkable, isn't it? How did he do that? How, how, how do we do that? When life gets really dark or really desperate, my own thoughts do not naturally move in the direction of God's goodness. Do yours? In fact, when something terrible happens, perhaps our most natural impulse is to question God, to feel abandoned by God, to feel angry at God even, and to want answers. Now, we don't know exactly how Alan Gardner got to that point of experiencing God and his goodness in an overwhelming way in spite of all that he was going through. I'm certain it was a process. I'm sure he had questions. I'm sure he wanted answers. I'm sure Alan Gardner had to wrestle and fight his way to that point with God, but, but somehow he got there. As we open our Bibles today, in a very interesting way, we're going to see in this passage a man named Habakkuk finding a way to get there too, getting to the point of trusting in the goodness of God and the plans of God, experience, experiencing deep intimacy with God, even in the midst of very dark and desperate circumstances. But as we'll see with Habakkuk, it wasn't easy. It's going to get a bit messy, but he does get there, and we'll see how it happened. And to the extent, friends, that we can understand how he got there and to the extent we can uh, do the same in our own lives, we can face anything that comes our way in this life. And so who is this guy, Habakkuk? You could go many years, perhaps a lifetime, even as a Christian without hearing a sermon preached on the book of Habakkuk, and that's unfortunate, and I hope to show you why. Habakkuk was one of God's prophets in the Old Testament, and as you'll see, what you have in this little book is a, a fascinating dialogue. It's a, a conversation between Habakkuk and God, and we get, to, we get to listen in on the conversation. And as we do, things get very interesting very quickly. Things get pretty intense pretty quickly, too. Listen to what, uh, what Habakkuk says, beginning in verse 2. He makes uh, a very desperate plea to God. Listen to what he says, beginning in verse 2. How long, Lord, must I call for help and you do not listen? Or cry out to you about violence and you do not save? Why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Oppression and violence are right in front of me. Strife is ongoing and conflict escalates. This is why the law is ineffective and justice never emerges. For the wicked restrict the righteous, therefore justice comes out perverted. And so right out of the gates, Habakkuk doesn't seem to be holding uh, much back. Habakkuk's questions for God, they, they kind of come in one after the other like crashing waves. Where are you, God? 
Why are you allowing these things? Why aren't you stopping these things? Without so much as a simple greeting, Habakkuk gets very real and very raw with God about what he's going through and what he sees happening uh, around him in his, uh, in his culture. You see, Habakkuk was living under a corrupt leader in the nation of Judah. Uh, his name was King Jehoiakim. And this king was supposed to be a godly leader of God's people, but he was not. And corruption was flowing from the top down into the society as a whole. The prophet Jeremiah, who lived at the same time as Habakkuk, wrote some things about this king. In chapters 22 and 23 of the book of Jeremiah, he wrote about how this king and his administration killed those who opposed him. They exploited laborers without paying them a fair wage. He wrote about how the priesthood and the prophets of God's people under this king's rule were themselves evil and corrupt and adulterous. He wrote about how this king sent assassins to kill the prophet named Uriah for, for prophesying that Jerusalem would fall, which is exactly what we'll see Habakkuk prophesying uh, in just a few moments. And so Habakkuk's life was quite possibly in danger. His country, uh, it was divided. Its leadership was corrupt. There was much injustice and oppression and violence all around him. And this is the backdrop against which Habakkuk makes this desperate plea to God. How long, Lord? Why? Why aren't you doing anything? Habakkuk says in verse 3, Why do you, God, why do you force me to look at injustice? Why do you, God, tolerate wrongdoing and violence and oppression? Habakkuk is struggling here quite clearly. He believes that his God could do something about these things, but he believes his God is not doing anything about these things, and he doesn't get it. He's struggling greatly. He's tore up about this. And the truth is, these questions are pertinent, aren't they, to every age? Why, God, how long until you do something? Why do you seem to give so much freedom to evil? Why do you allow the injustice and the oppression all around us? Do you ever ask these sorts of questions of God? Should we? Habakkuk does. He doesn't bury his emotions. He doesn't minimize the, the turmoil he's feeling. No, he takes all that he's feeling. He takes all that he's experiencing and all that he's struggling with. And we see him taking it to God and arguing with God about these things quite openly and quite honestly. And as I said, this is a dialogue, it's a conversation between God and Habakkuk, and God does respond. He doesn't give the uh, answers Habakkuk is looking for. He doesn't answer the questions directly, but he does give a reply, and it's a very disorienting reply beginning in verse 5. He says, look, look at the nations and observe. Be utterly astounded, for I am doing something in your days that you will not believe when you hear about it. So when God begins speaking in verse 5, he answers Habakkuk in a, a very peculiar way. He says, I'm working in ways that will be very difficult for you to believe. And surely to Habakkuk, that doesn't seem like much of an answer at all. It doesn't really seem to answer Habakkuk's questions. It's like Habakkuk says, look at this, look at what's happening over here. And God says, look at that, look at what, what's about to happen over there. The question and the answer, they seem unrelated. Is, is God ignoring this question? Is, is God ignoring Habakkuk's question? 
Habakkuk begins with a domestic issue, and God starts talking about an international one. Look at, look at the nations, he says. He says, you're going to be astounded. Habakkuk says, look at this. God replies, look at that. And as God continues talking here, he's going to give Habakkuk a reminder, a very disorienting reminder about his sovereignty, a reminder of God's sovereign control over his creation and everything and everyone in it. In verse 5, God says, you wouldn't believe what I'm doing if, even if I told you, Habakkuk. And then in verse 6, God tells him what he's doing. Look at verse 6. He says, look, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter, impetuous nation that marches across the earth's open spaces to seize territories, not its own. Now, this term, Chaldeans, it's, also, it's referring to the Babylonians, the, the Babylonian empire that reached its peak of power under a wicked man named Nebuchadnezzar in the 6th century, century B.C. They were a ruthless people with a ruthless reputation, and they were ravaging many regions at that time. And God says in verse 6, God says, I'm raising them up. And in the verses that follow, God goes on and tells us about these Chaldeans, these Babylonians, who he's raising up. In verse 7, he says they're a fierce and terrifying people. In verse 8, he compares them to wild animals. In verse 9, he says they're bringing much violence. They're going to gather captives like sand. In verse 10, he says they mock kings and rulers are a joke to them. In verse 11, he says they worship themselves. They worship themselves and their own strength. And so what is this all about? It's certainly not the answer Habakkuk wanted or was hoping for. God doesn't respond to Habakkuk's questions by saying, I'm going to make things better for you. He doesn't say, uh, I'm sending relief. He says, I'm ra raising up a, a ruthless people, and they're coming swiftly, and they're coming powerfully. And your people, Habakkuk, many of whom are also my people, Habakkuk, you're going to be invaded. You're going to be conquered. You're going to be scattered. You're going to be scattered into exile. And God says to Habakkuk, this is... This is my doing. I'm going to make this happen. And so what kind of answer is that? What, what kind of God is that? Habakkuk surely was stunned in this moment. You, you call that an answer? Are you serious? I cry out asking, asking you why you allow evil and injustice to run rampant among your people, and your answer is that more evil and injustice are coming, not from the inside where things are already jacked up, but from the outside at the hands of the Babylonians. Habakkuk is beside himself. He's so beside himself, he makes a very alarming statement in verse 12. Right after God gives this disorienting answer, look at what Habakkuk says in verse 12. He says, Lord, are you not from eternity? Which also means, Lord, are you not infinite? Now, in English, as we read that, it doesn't necessarily come across as all that provocative, but, but in Hebrew, Habakkuk is very much confronting God with this uh, rhetorical question. A commentator, a Hebrew scholar named Francis Anderson, commenting on the use of this particular Hebrew phrase that's translated, are you not, are you not from eternity, in verse 12, he says this, he says, most of the 96 occurrences of this phrase in the Bible are found in the context of vigorous human arguments. And so this is no neutral phrase here. This is very charged language used by Habakkuk. Are you not from eternity, Lord, he says in verse 12. In the four or five verses that follow, Habakkuk poses a follow-up 
question to God in light of this new information about the Chaldeans. He asks, how, God, could you allow those who are wicked to swallow up those who are more righteous? And then Habakkuk goes on to essentially assign blame to God for everything that was happening to him and to his people. And so we see an escalating level of emotional intensity here with Habakkuk. This uh, Anderson, the commentator Anderson, says there's nothing like it anywhere in the Bible. He says, Habakkuk was basically saying something like this. Lord, I thought you were infinite. You were supposed to be this great God, infinite, wise, and everlasting. But I'm not so sure. God is not really being approached with respect and reverence here. Some commentators say that these are perhaps some of the most insulting words spoken directly to God in the entire Bible. Habakkuk is rattled. He seemed to be uh, going off the rails, but understandably so at some level, given the news that he's uh, just received, he's processing some pretty raw emotions. He's emotionally charged over what he's hearing and, and what, is, uh, what he now knows is coming. But notice something here. One thing we can see is that Habakkuk, he continues talking to God through it all, doesn't he? He's struggling greatly. He's overwhelmed. But at the same time, we don't see him walking away from God. We don't see uh, him shutting God out. He engages God. He engages God with all of his emotions. Do you do that? I think one of the reasons this book is in the Bible is to show us something about that. We see real and raw wrestling with God here. We see honest and personal uh, protest in this dialogue. And friends, these are necessary and vital forms of relationship with our God, especially when we are confused about our lives, and especially when we are confused about the state of the world around us. Habakkuk, he came out with intensity in this conversation with God, but, but God, in fact, intensifies the conversation even further. He wants to kind of shake and shock Habakkuk into bigger ways of, of thinking. He wants to expand his view of reality. And Habakkuk does get there, not right away, but we'll see he does get there in the end. And we see Habakkuk processing all of this in some interesting ways. He's, he's struggling with what he's hearing, but we also see him move into a certain acceptance and acknowledgement of, of what he's hearing. Because not long after saying, are you not from eternity, Lord? He says, he says I do see what you're doing, Lord. I don't, I don't like it, but I see it and I get it. You see Habakkuk is being reminded here, and he's going to be reminding us too here of something about God's judgment. Look at verse 12b. He says, Lord, you appointed them, them being the Chaldeans, to execute judgment. You destined them to punish us. Now, Habakkuk, he was, of course, well aware of his people's covenant with God. And he was also well aware that in Deuteronomy chapters 28 and 29, as, as part of that covenant, God laid out very clear blessings for his people that would flow from their obedience to the covenant and its commands. But God also laid out in his covenant equally clear cursings for their, for their disobedience. And things didn't go so well with God's people for uh, hundreds of years, God's people again and again, they, they failed God and they failed their covenant with God. For hundreds of years, God warned his people through his prophets to turn back to him, to quit trusting in themselves, to quit assimilating to the culture around them. 
But again and again, God's people drifted and strayed from him, living life on their own terms rather than his. God had been incredibly patient and merciful with his people. He had patiently pursued his covenant people, not because they were good, but because he was. But they stumbled and faltered again and again. In fact, as Habakkuk processed all this, he surely also remembered that that he wasn't the first one to ask the question, why? He wasn't the first one to ask the question, how long? Habakkuk knew that God himself had asked his own people these very same questions. In Exodus chapter 16, verse 28, the Lord said to his people, how long? How long will you refuse to keep my commands and instructions? In Numbers chapter 14, verse 11, the Lord said, How long will you despise me? How long will you not trust in me despite all the signs that I have performed among you? So in Habakkuk chapter 1, when God talked about raising up the Chaldeans, Habakkuk recoiled when he heard this, and, and his emotions certainly got the better of him in that moment. But at the same time, he was beginning to understand that that God's patience had reached its end and God's promised correction would be coming down upon his own people, apparently at the hands of the Babylonians. And so we see Habakkuk make this desperate plea. We see God give this very difficult and very disorienting reply. But Habakkuk, he's working through it. He's processing. He's not walking away. He's wrestling. And the reason Habakkuk is able to hang in there, I think, the, the foundation for it all is the very dynamic nature of the relationship that he that he had with God what we see in the midst of all this in fact running along right alongside his very emotionally charged posture is a very a very dynamic faith on the part of Habakkuk a very vibrant and personal and dynamic faith one thing that's clear is that through his struggles and through his situation Habakkuk never lost sight of of who his God was to him Habakkuk knew God's character, and Habakkuk trusted in God's character. Look again at verse 12. It's a fascinating verse. There's a lot going on there. Even though Habakkuk was struggling, even though he was overwhelmed, we see that even in all this, his faith was intensely personal. In the same breath that Habakkuk challenges God, are you not from everlasting or eternity? And in the same breath that he's acknowledging and accepting that God was raising up the Babylonians as an agent of judgment against his own people, look at the various ways that Habakkuk refers to God in this single verse. He calls him God. He calls him Lord. He calls him Holy One. He calls him Rock. But notice, too, he doesn't just call him these things. He doesn't just say, you're the Lord, you're the Holy One, you're the rock. He says to God, he says to God, you're mine. You're my God. You're my Holy One. You're my rock. This is very personal, very possessive language. You're mine, he says. And you don't say that sort of thing about someone unless there's a, there's a certain depth and intimacy to the relationship. You might say that about your spouse, you might say that about your kids, but you wouldn't normally otherwise say that about many other people at all. But that's how he refers to his God, even in this difficult moment, even in the midst of deep despair, his language remains very personal and very intimate. Habakkuk knows that his God is big enough to raise up nations or to bring them down if he wants to, but he also knows that his God is near enough and 
approachable enough to, to call him his own. He says, you're mine. In a way, this single verse 12, uh, in this verse, we see a fascinating picture of, of the complexity of faith and of being in real and honest relationship with God. Underneath all the questions and emotions, once Habakkuk caught his breath, he underneath it all trusted in God's character. After all, he had a history with his God. He and his people had this incredible history of God's faithfulness. And later in chapter 3, you actually see Habakkuk recalling this history and recounting God's faithfulness again and again. And as he does, he turns a pretty sharp corner. The the tone shifts uh, rather dramatically. Listen to this, Habakkuk Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 2 to 4. Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in awe of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. His splendor covers the heavens and the earth is full of his praise. His brilliance is like light. Rays are flashing from his hands. This is where his power is hidden. So Habakkuk, he's he's getting there, isn't he? He's beginning to move from, from desperation to delight as he reflects on God's goodness and on his faithfulness and as he trusts in God's character. But we also see Habakkuk trusted in not only in God's character, but in uh, God's complexity. You see, in spite of all the darkness that surrounded him, and in spite of the even greater darkness that he knew would be coming upon uh, him and his people, Habakkuk understood that he could, not, he could not see the entire picture. Now remember, in verses 5 and 6, God said, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, your enemies. And he said, you're going to be amazed and astounded at what I do. Now, Habakkuk, he could not see exactly what was coming. He didn't know what was going to happen or when, but we know what happened. And let me tell you what happened, because what happened is is quite remarkable. Out of nowhere, within what is believed to be about a decade of when Habakkuk is believed to have written these words, the, uh, the Babylonians rose to power. They rose to power very quickly. They rolled into Judah. They pummeled God's people, just as God had said, and they scattered God's people across a very wide geographical region. Now, historians have actually had a lot to say about uh, just how rapid their rise to power was and just how extensive was the, the, the havoc that they wreaked. This virtually non-existent people rose to power out of nowhere to rule over uh, Babylonia and Assyria, to rule over Palestine and Egypt when Egypt when. Uh, 20 years prior, they were hardly known to even exist. And get this, these Babylonians, they fell from power nearly as quickly as they came. Within a matter of decades, they fell to the Persian king Cyrus in 539 B.C. And so historically speaking, these Babylonians came and went in the blink of an eye doing exactly what God had told Habakkuk they were going to do, and that is to invade and scatter God's people. Now, from our perspective, looking back as we can, let me offer you a glimpse into the reality of Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5, where God said, look around among the nations and be utterly astounded, for I am doing a work in your day that you wouldn't believe if told. Now, Habakkuk, Habakkuk of course, would, would not and could not have seen any of what I'm about to tell you, but this This historical event, this defeat of God's people, the scattering of God's people had profound consequences. 
You see, as God's people were displaced and scattered into new regions throughout the ancient world, they took their religion with them. They built synagogues. They built hundreds, if not thousands, of synagogues throughout the ancient Near East that otherwise never would have been established. And as a result, in most every city in the ancient world, you had synagogue communities. You had Jews worshiping God in these synagogues. And you also had Gentile God-fearers, as they were called, also coming in to learn about the God of Israel within these synagogue communities. And get this, hundreds of years later, when word about Jesus and his resurrection was getting out, when Christianity was beginning to spread, and you could see some of this in the book of Acts, actually, but historians will tell you that the most receptive people in the world to the gospel in the very beginning of the Christian movement were not the pagans, they were not the Jews, but they were the Gentile God-fearers who were part of these synagogue communities, these same synagogue communities that never would have existed if the Babylonians hadn't invaded and scattered God's people into exile, just as God said they would. And so we have to ask ourselves a very compelling question in light of verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1 of the book of Habakkuk, looking back as we can. Was this our sovereign God at work all along, raising up the Babylonians, orchestrating human history and in unbelievable and unimaginable ways, according to his timeline, according to his purposes, all to lay the necessary foundation that would in every way fuel the explosive growth of the early church. Charles Spurgeon said that God often works in ways that look like undoing and not doing. And I think Habakkuk, he, he got there, he he got there, he was able to trust that idea. He knew that even when it seemed that things were completely uh, coming apart with his God, he knew that it was possible that everything might actually be falling right into place. He knew that he couldn't see the whole picture. Even though he knew that his own situation was going to get worse before it got better, he trusted in the complexity of God's plans. He, he trusted in the complexity of God's purposes. He trusted, just as God had said to him in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 14, that ultimately, no matter how uncertain his future looked, no matter how dark or difficult his life got on this earth, he knew that a time was coming when the earth would be filled with the knowledge of the glory of God as the waters cover the sea. And Habakkuk knew and he, he trusted that he had a place in that future glory. He didn't know exactly how, but he believed God. He trusted in God's character. He trusted in God's complexity. And he also trusted in God's gospel. Now, you may be thinking, what is he talking about? What gospel is he talking about? We're in the Old Testament here, right? But check this out. Right in the middle of this whole exchange, God says something quite remarkable. Look at Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. In the very same conversation where God makes clear that his own people were coming under judgment, and in the very same conversation where God makes clear that the Babylonians were also coming under judgment, and therefore in the very same conversation where God uh, seems to be saying, you all fall short, you're all coming under my judgment, God drops this bomb in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Now remember, after God told Habakkuk about raising up the Chaldeans, Habakkuk, uh, he rephrased his original question in light of that new information. 
Remember, he asked in chapter 1, verse 13, Lord, how can you allow one who is so wicked, referring to the Babylonians, to swallow up one who is more righteous, referring to the nation of Israel? You see, he thought one group was more righteous before God than the other. And this is God's answer to that in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. He says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by faith. Now, in the context of this conversation, let me try to explain what I think is going on here. God is saying, you're all deserving of my judgment. He makes that clear here in this book. He makes that clear uh, all over the Bible. But he says to Habakkuk here, the righteous shall live by his faith. God is giving Habakkuk here, he's giving his people here, he's giving us here as well a glimpse, a glimpse of the grace of the gospel in this little verse. God is saying there are two ways forward for all of you. One is to put your faith in yourself, the other is to put your faith in me. The first way is to rely on yourself and what you do. And God said in chapter 2, verse 16 of Habakkuk that for those who choose that path, for those who look to their own intellect and their own strength to make things right. For those who glory in themselves, God said the cup in the Lord's right hand, referring to the cup of God's judgment, of God's wrath, will come around to you and utter disgrace will cover your glory, he had said there. But the second way forward, and this is massive, God says the second way forward is not is to rely not on yourself and what you do, but on but to rely on what you believe and, and who you trust, the righteous shall live by faith. God is saying that the righteous, those who are right with me, those who are accepted by me, those who are loved by me, can never and will never get there by what you do. He says you can only get there by faith. And so Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4, it's a, it's a seed, it's a hint it's a faint whisper of the gospel in this little obscure book of Habakkuk, more than six, written more than 600 years before Jesus ever showed up. And did you know that Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 4 is truly a pivotal verse in God's overarching story? The Apostle Paul, he dialed into this verse. He, he heard the whisper, and God used Paul to turn that whisper into a shout, into a joyous shout in the New Testament. Paul quotes this verse, in fact, on multiple occasions. In Romans chapter 1, verse 17, uh, Paul says this, For in it, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 11, Paul says, Now it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law, but the righteous will live by faith. Paul and other New Testament writers, too, dialed into this verse in very uh, direct ways, and God used it to inform their understanding of the person and the work of Jesus. Centuries later, the same verse, Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, transformed Martin Luther's heart, and it transformed his understanding of the gospel. Martin Luther, you may know, was the 16th century German theologian who essentially launched the Protestant Reformation. He launched the Protestant Reformation by pushing back, uh, by pushing back hard on, on the Roman Catholic Church and some of their 
teachings, in particular their teachings that you're accepted by God based on what you do and how well you do it and how well and how often and how vigorously you confess your sins and, and repent of your sins. But before all that, before that movement, before Luther started that movement, he was, he was a monk. He was an Augustinian monk. And at one point, while he was on a pilgrimage to Rome, Luther paid a visit to the church of St. John's Lateran, as many others did too and still do. And one of the reasons he went there is because there's a staircase there that was connected to Pontius Pilate's judgment hall where Jesus himself is believed to have taken steps toward his crucifixion. Now, it was, it was Roman Catholic tradition to climb this staircase. It was Roman uh, Catholic tradition to, to climb this staircase, uh, but not on your feet. You did, it, you did it on your knees. People would climb the steps one at a time on their knees, kissing the steps where it was thought that the blood of Jesus had fallen. But get this, the reason people did this was because of what they were told by the Roman Catholic Church it would do for them. What they were told it would accomplish for them. You see, the Pope at the time promised indulgences for people who would do this, basically telling people that they would receive less punishment for their sins from God and more favor with God if they would do these things, if they would climb these steps on their knees in the right ways, saying the right prayers at the right time as they did. Now, Luther, Martin Luther, he came to this place. He saw all these people doing this, and he, he started doing it too. But as he did this, the story goes that Luther was suddenly shaken by the words of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. The righteous will live by his faith. It's said that when he remembered this verse, he stood up, he walked down the stairs, and he went straight home to Germany. Listen to what Luther himself said about this experience. He said, before those words of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4 broke upon my mind, I hated God and was angry with him. Because not content with frightening us sinners by the law and by the miseries of life, he still further increased our torture by the gospel. You see, Luther's understanding of the gospel at that point was that it was setting before him and it was setting before us a, a standard of obedience that, that neither he or us would ever, could ever possibly hope to attain. But Luther said this, he said, when by the Spirit of God I understood those words, the righteous shall live by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. Then I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. Some say the Protestant Reformation began on those stairs that day as, as verse 4 of chapter 2 of, of, of this little book of Habakkuk gripped Luther's mind and, and caught fire in his, in his heart. And so God drops a bomb right in the middle of this conversation with Habakkuk that would ripple and reverberate far into the future and that echoes loudly to this day in the gospel that you and I know and, and understand. This, this verse, it changed Luther. It, it changed the course of church history in a radical and beautiful uh, new direction. This verse changed Habakkuk too. Let's return to Habakkuk briefly as we finish up, looking, looking at where he lands after all this. After all the emotions, after all the wrestling, after this very personal and honest dialogue with God, 
And after taking in this beautiful whisper of the gospel in chapter 2, verse 4, look at where Habakkuk lands in the final few verses of this book. Things are still very real and very raw. That hasn't changed. He says in verse 16 that I tremble at what is coming. He says, all that I can do is wait. But then listen to the final words he writes. Final two verses, uh, 17 and 18. Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stalls, Get this, verse 18, he says, yet, in spite of it all, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. He makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. And so, just like Alan Gardner earlier, Habakkuk, he got there too. It's all very honest. It's all very real. It can get messy at times. We see in this little book of the Bible a microcosm of faith. We see the complexity of being in a vibrant and dynamic uh, relationship with our God. We've seen elements of fear and frustration. We've seen anger and angst. But we've also seen acceptance. We've seen remembrance. We've seen praise. We've seen worship. We've seen joy. Habakkuk managed to find deep joy in the midst of great darkness, not superficially with eyes closed to the struggle, but looking life in the face and wrestling with it, looking God in the face too and wrestling with him, but, but also underneath it all, trusting in God's character, trusting in his complexity and trusting in this whisper of God's gospel. God met him where he was at and in the way that he needed by expanding his perspective in this very difficult time. Habakkuk didn't arrive at an easier picture of his future, but he did arrive at a bigger one where he could rejoice, not in his circumstances, but through them, refusing to lose sight of who his God was to him, calling him my Lord, my Holy One, my Rock. May you and I in our darkest doubts and deepest despair be able to say the same. There was a professor at Whitworth University in Spokane. His name was Jerry Sitzer. In seminary, I was actually assigned a book of his to read at one point, which is how I learned about him and learned about his story. Back in the mid-1990s, Sitzer and his wife, Linda, along with their four children and his mother, Grace, too, they had been on a family road trip in Idaho. As they were re returning home, a drunk driver in an oncoming lane going 85 miles per hour swerved into their lane and hit them head on. In that instant, Sitzer lost his mother, he lost his wife, and he lost his youngest daughter. Sitzer would later describe how in the months that followed, he was slowly slipping away into deep despair. He simply wanted out, he said. One night he said he had a kind of waking dream. He said that in this dream the sun was setting and he was frantically chasing after it toward the west, hoping he might catch it, hoping he might bring it back, hoping he might bring some light back into his life. But he said it was a losing race. Soon the sun was gone and he said he felt a vast darkness closing in on him again. 
a few days later, as he described this dream to his sister, she said something to him that shook him, that shook him into a new way of thinking. She said, Jerry, you know the quickest way to reach the sun is not to go west, but to, not to chase it to the west, but instead to head east, to move fully into the darkness until you see the rising sun. It was a counterintuitive insight that really began to turn things around for Sitzer. He decided from that point on to head east, to walk into the darkness, to walk fully into the darkness and to allow God to meet him there, however hard that seemed. And it changed things for him as he, as he stopped trying to outrun his struggles or hide from them or surrender to them. Instead, he began walking into the darkness until he could see the sun. Friends, the reason that you and I can walk into the darkness and know with certainty that we'll see the sun is because the sun went before us. Jesus, he went before us. Great darkness fell upon him too. He made a desperate plea to the Father too, asking why, asking if there was another way. He wrestled faithfully in the Garden of Gethsemane, anguish to the point of sweating drops of blood. But he trusted his father. His relationship with his father was personal. He, he knew his father was faithful. He knew his father was good. He trusted his father in the face of an unimaginable trial. When God said to Habakkuk in chapter 1, verse 5, be amazed, I'm doing a work in your day that will astound you. He was talking about the Babylonians, but he was also pointing forward too because you see the ultimate expression of that was yet to come. Jesus Christ dying on a cross is the ultimate expression of God working in unbelievable and astounding ways. Christ came in weakness. He came in humility. He came not to serve, but to be served. He came not to bring judgment, but to bear it. He brought light out of darkness. He achieved victory through defeat. He brought salvation out of judgment. At the cross, our God took the most evil act of all human history, and he turned it into the most beautiful the cross reminds us, it must remind us, it should remind us that uh, even in the very darkest moments of our life that God is at work in ways that we cannot see or understand. Are you trusting that? Are you basing your life on that? Can you believe the unbelievable? Look, wonder, be astounded, he says, for I am doing a work in your day that you would not believe if told. Please pray with me.